The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Can you guess which one's Barney's? Hello. Hey, Barney. Dallas, how are you, mate? Good. This is Nicole Cook. Hello. Nicole, good to meet you. Yeah. Nicole's been doing. Uh, Sound Minds Radio, getting you behind the research and ideas in contemporary life. This episode produced by Dallas Rogers. Sound Minds Radio, part of the Community Radio Network. Soundminds.com.au. Do you need to put some stuff down? No, I was going to say if you oh, want to have a look at the place. Yeah, let's have a look. Hello, Soundminders. As you can hear, today we're out and about in the city. Well, we're in Sydney to be precise. And we've just arrived at Barney Gardener's house in the suburb of Millers Point, which is just under the Harbour Bridge. I've spent a bit of time with Barney over the last couple of years, interviewing him for various research projects on inner city gentrification. You see, Barney was born in Millers Point, and he's lived here all his life. A couple of years ago, he told me he had to move out of his house and the neighbourhood because the public housing he was living in was being sold off. This is Barney talking about being evicted outside New South Wales State Parliament House in March 2014. The Minister for Housing, Prue Gow, had stood on the viewing platform of the Carl Expressway. Not less than a kilometre from here and less than a kilometre from where we live. She was, about, she was about to divulge the future of us tenants that live down at Miller Point on national TV without the intestinal fortitude to come down and tell the tenants themselves. She was about to tear up a community, a community that has existed for over 200 years, a public housing estate that's been there for 100 years. Barney tells me he's been fighting his eviction and fighting to save his community ever since. See, the land around Millers Point has been at the centre of tension between local placemaking and globalising forces for almost 250 years. It's the site of repeated waves of displacement, resistance and urban renewal. This is Tanya Plebisek the member for Sydney and deputy leader of the opposition, talking about the announcement of Miller's Point evictions, also from March 2014. Today, the O'Farrell government have dropped a bomb on the inner city of Sydney. They've announced today, with no consultation and no warning, that they will sell almost 300 properties in Miller's Point in Sydney. 300 homes that have been public housing for some for generations. Uh, families that have lived in Millers Point for one or two or three generations. People often ask what is the difference between a house and a home and the difference between a house and a home is the family who live there, the people who live there and you could just as easily ask the same question about a suburb. What's the difference between a suburb and a community? The difference between a suburb and a community are the people who live there, the people who've put their roots down there, the people who've sent their children to school there, the people who know each other, who know their neighbours, who help each other. And that's what Miller's point is, it's a community. It's a community with a long history 
and it's a community um, that has supported and cared for each other throughout that long history. For most of the last two centuries, Millers Point's proximity to major wharfs and maritime industries saw the place develop as a largely low-income, working-class neighbourhood, which in the early 1970s was saved from modernist development by the Green Bands. The Green Bands is a topic that Barney and Nicole Cook at the University of Wollongong know a thing or two about. So I'm down here with Nicole to talk about urban development in Sydney and what the Green Bands can teach us about Global Sydney. The Green Bands were an important social movement in Sydney in the 1970s. They were an alliance between the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation and a number of resident action groups who at the time were uh, really perplexed and I think challenging some of the decisions that were taken by the Askin State Government in terms of urban development and urban restructuring and some fairly uh, large-scale transport and kind of freeway decisions that were being taken. And these decisions and planning proposals were really affecting some significant places where people lived in Sydney at the time. And some of this was in the inner city but it was also in suburban Sydney. That sort of marked, I think, the broad base and the, and the broad commitment of the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation to urban issues, regardless of really the neighbourhood in which they were located. And I think this kind of is, is very interesting in thinking about this movement, not just as a social movement, but in fact as a planning movement. So how significant were the Green Bands as an urban planning movement? Uh, it's hugely significant, I think, for, for kind of... Um, leveraging the green bands into the future, but also in terms of the gains that were made there in terms of preserving that housing um, and buying time as well. And ultimately, you know, the Department of Housing eventually came on board in the mid-70s. Planning legislation was starting to shift. Um, and in fact, there was an extension of the affordable housing stock at that time with the very famous Sirius building. So it did, in fact, become this extraordinary case at the time, certainly in New South Wales, of urban renewal that incorporated affordable housing. But those who know Sydney well are aware that the Sirius building is now under threat of demolishment, again. And the CFMEU put a green ban on the Sirius building in 2016, which has revitalised the debate about the role of green bans and public housing more generally. Here's Colin Bissett with a truly British, grand designs take on the building. I noticed the Sirius housing complex as soon as I arrived in Sydney in 1996. Its stepped outline of stacked concrete boxes looks like something you'd expect to find in Detroit or Manchester. When I found out that it was a public housing development, then I thought that was wonderful, because it seemed magnificent to have social housing occupying pretty much the best seat in the house, with great views over Circular Quay like the way Australian campsites often have the best beach access. It's a sign of an egalitarian country, I told myself, foolishly believing the old chestnut about Australia. Because, like most cities, Sydney isn't about equality. It's about money and views. And so Sirius must go, 
its sold price allowing the building of new public housing on the outskirts of the city, removing families who have lived in the area for generations. So what do the green bands of the 1970s teach us about urban protest and urban change in the contemporary global city of Sydney? Nicole Cook again on the 1970s green bands. It had started to generate really, I think, quite a lot of resident protest. And the unique thing about this type of protest was really the involvement of the union at the time. And they felt that um, as the, the kind of workers who were enlisted in constructing this you know, highly developed city that was potentially going to be threatening neighbourhoods, that they really had a right to have a say about some of the development that was proposed. And of course they had quite a big role in this, in this process because their labour, as the Builders Labourers Federation, was really needed to undertake many of the plans that had been proposed because they would be involved, for instance, in clearing the sites for development. They would be involved in working with builders in, in doing the sort of preparation. And so for them to sort of get on side with resident action groups and to say um, effectively, we are not going to lend our support or our labour, particularly to to these types of plans, it, it sort of really put a thorn in the side of certainly, I think, the state government, but also uh, many developers at the time. And this action was really significant because it spanned a number of different uh, sites across the city and it ran for a number of years, um, for at least three years um, in the early 70s in Sydney. And here's the infamous Jack Mundy talking about the 1970s green bands. And a central theme that the residents put forward is this, that there must be, in all this city area, provision for working class people, for people of low and middle income, to be able to reside in the area. It's not much good winning a 35-hour week if we're going to choke to death in planless and polluted cities where rents are too high, where ordinary people can't live. There will never, ever be any reconstruction, any rejuvenation, regeneration of this area until such time as the residents receive ironclad guarantees that people in the low income brackets, workers, can afford to live in these areas. There were a number of sites that the, that the union, in conjunction with and in alliance with resident action groups, decided that they would place a ban on. Their work wasn't going to be used to achieve these kind of plans of demolition and also the removal of green space and also the, the removal of kind of heritage buildings. And so rather than calling this something like you would normally call this type of strike in terms of labour on, for instance, for industrial reasons, that is to improve people's wages, rather than calling it a black ban, which would be the name that you would give to an industrial strike, they started to refer to this actually some, some months after these actions had started occurring um, as a green ban. And the green ban effectively um, was the removal of, of labour from those sites that then disrupted the plans of the state government. And so it very much falls into uh, the realm of social action and activism. So we heard Jack Mundy talking about the green bans as a political process aimed at providing affordable housing for low-income and working-class people in the city. So how do the green bands relate to affordable housing? Workers and residents really trying to have some sort of say about the change in their neighbourhoods. And critically at the time, there was no real legislation that enabled 
residents who were not property owners to have some say over the plans that that were were being proposed and of course people who were in social housing whether that's public housing or housing provided by another social housing provider had no say whatsoever and so a number of these green band sites did incorporate such areas including Miller's Point which is obviously a relevant case today. I've told them that, you know, I'm staying here, you'll have to evict me, and uh, I'm just one voice for a a lot more life. I think this site was really important because it was probably the third site, I think, that had a green band placed on it, and because Miller's Point was, was part of a huge urban renewal process in the 1970s, so the New South Wales State Government had just formed the Sydney Cove Redevelopment Authority. Millers Point was a part of this site and part of the jurisdiction of this newly formed authority was really earmarked for the first phase of large-scale urban renewal, waterfront renewal uh, within Sydney. And this was very much a a kind of um, a contest really between the visions of government at the time to kind of create this, what we would think of today as a kind of global city feeling in that area and obviously the the property development that goes along with that. But also uh, that obviously conflicted with uh, the working class residents within the neighbourhood and because that area within Sydney has um, had a long tradition of settlement by wharf workers and and workers in the the docks that were in that area and there was a lot of uh, social housing and affordable housing in that neighbourhood as there is today although the situation obviously that situation is changing at the moment. And so these kind of plans that were proposed in the rocks really epitomised, I think, the tensions within the city at the time between a very strong, boosterous kind of uh, global city privatisation um, and, and office development and this sort of tradition, I guess, of, of working class neighbourhoods, communities and families. And so this sort of same tension that we see today was really played out in the 1970s. And so they were able to really defend this, not just a matter of environmental significance, but also a matter of social significance within cities and, and to put forward an agenda that that really asserted, I think, the diverse attachments to place that people can have beyond those that were being articulated in the state government plans at the time. You've been listening to another episode from Sound Minds Radio, produced for the Community Radio Network. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or visit our website, soundminds.com.au.